everything's terrible. Let's start the show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is John Mejias talking to you from New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Hi, everybody. It's time for We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... Yeah, I mean, if you look close enough, some of them don't look like anything. But, you know, if there's 10,000 of them, it doesn't matter. And this week we have... Nicholas DeGeneva in Toronto talking about... I've always been able to live off my work that doesn't really, like, indicate that I had a super successful career. It indicated that I was also really good at surviving off of very little money. Hello. How's it going? I shouldn't complain. <laughs> How are you doing, Nick? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I'm here. I borrowed a, a room from my bar job here to a quiet place to talk and use the internet. I don't have the internet at home, so I'm sort of tucked away on the second floor of the my apartment. Nicholas DeGeneva does not have the internet at home. <laughs> really? I haven't had the internet in four years. Is that just working out for you? I wish it's I could. Good. See. That's how you get so much work done. Yeah, I find that I get more work done. I go to a place with the internet to download podcasts, download audiobooks and stuff. Yeah, I don't have the internet in my studio or in my apartment. It's like Walden. You're like Henry David Thoreau. <laughs> you're like living an intentional life. You have to plan out which podcasts you're going to download in advance. <laughs> Do you saw your own chairs and distill your own whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I make my own juice. <laughs> what kind of juice is it? Carrot juice. Whoa. Yeah, I drink a lot of carrot juice. That's amazing. Do you know the names of all the birds in the neighborhood? Some of them. <laughs> we have a little garden. This is how we're judging you. Besides the Blue Jays, which is yeah. easy. <laughs> Everybody could ID a Blue Jay. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me on. I haven't spoken to either of you in quite a while. I know, it sucks. It's stupid. You yeah. should get on the internet. I should. Yes. I sh- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so the way we are supposed to do these is we do them chronologically. So in the beginning, you were born. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right? Where? <laughs> the beginning of your life. Where were you? What was going on? Yeah, it started with birth. I was born in uh, 81, at two hours outside of Toronto, a city called Belleville. I don't know. I'm the youngest. In were family. you triplets? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. when, I, when that movie came out, I was so confused because I thought like for a split second that maybe they were talking about my hometown and then realized very quickly that they weren't. But I am a family of three. I got two older sisters. Uh, and as a kid, I was really into, you know, uh, National Geographic and RPGs and monster stuff. And I've just been drawn my whole life. Did you have a million National Geographic stickers? Yeah, my family had a subscription, which was really lucky. I think that actually that subscription to National Geographic sort of had a, had a huge impact on the, on the course of my life. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the shows we do, we, um, people go, I don't really know where my art comes from. And then we like dig deep and talk for like two or three hours. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I just paint Mack trucks. And my mother died in a Mack truck accident. <laughs> and you're just like right on top. Like you paint weird animals with guns sticking out of them. <laughs> and you like National Geographic and video games. Yeah. So we're done. We can go home. Yeah, my parents had like the yeah, the National Geographics and, you know, animal books and stuff. My parents are both really into nature. And they also had this book on mythical creatures. It's a big compendium that I dig through. And I think that when I was like five or six, I don't think I really knew a difference between the mythical creatures and the National Geographic. It was all one sort of big thing to me. So... 
I thought I'd be like a naturalist, but I also thought that dragons and minotaurs actually existed. And it's very confusing, but yeah, it's just always just been drawn that stuff, reading about animals. So you're like compensating for that early disappointment. <laughs> when I found out it didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I think that when I was a kid, I thought that um, being like a, a monster hunter, traveling naturalist, just sort of like roaming badass would actually be a, a career choice. And that's what I wanted to do. Sort of like a gunslinger version of Audubon or something. Well, Audubon was a gunslinger. He um, actually shot all of those birds that he painted. So, Did he really? Oh. Yeah, like he was a yeah. hunter. Like he'd be like, look at that beautiful grouse, and then paint it dead. Yeah. And that's why he got them so accurate, because <laughs> they were moving. <laughs> and then he would write about them, and then... Oh. Yeah, I realized yeah. that until uh, I read an interview with Walton Ford, and they were like, oh, do you, do you love Audubon? And I think he was like, ah, that guy killed so much shit. <laughs> like, I don't know how I feel about him. What kinds of things were you drawing when you were a little kid? Pretty much just like the characters that were in like my Final Fantasy games, my in Dragon Warrior and stuff like that, and animals, and pretty much just the exact same thing that I draw now. There is a, a sample on Instagram, on my Instagram. of your uh, comic Dragon Killer, <laughs> which looks amazing. Like, it's really well drawn. How old were you when you did sure. Dragon Killer? I was a bit older when I did that. I think that was, oh man, I think that was 92, so I would have been 11. It says grade four. Grade four, yeah. So how old are you in grade four? I think you're... You're like 10, 9 or 10. But I did a few sort of similar books younger, but the Dragon Killer were the only ones that I sort of, I think my mom held on to them because she thought they were cute or something. But there's like a real design sense and like... I don't know, like, there's nothing stiff about them, which is surprising. Like, I don't know, I just feel like people trying to get stuff right. I think at this age was when I seriously wanted to be, like, I think I wanted to be a fantasy writer. Mm. So you had given up on the dream of being a monster hunter. (laughs) Time to buckle down. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much around the time, yeah, I realized that probably wasn't a real job. And uh, (laughs) and I, I decided I'd put all that energy into writing fantasy. Did you play Dungeons and Dragons or just like uh, the video game stuff? Just the video game stuff. I always had, like I had monster manuals. So I was a huge comic fan too and uh, Wizard and Hero Magazine. And sort of, I, I became aware of Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't know anybody that played it. So with, you know, the video game stuff, you don't need to know anyone who plays it. So I played all those <laughs> on my own. I wish that I knew people, but yeah, I never connected with anyone playing it when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, oh, I guess wow. it would have been too late. I mean, for the big, yeah, the big push. I, I think I missed the the first big thing. Like, I I kind of became aware of it in the late eighties. Yeah, I was born in the early seventies, so I was all about Dungeons and Dragons. You know. Yeah, I wish that I don't know. It just didn't seem to be going on. Like then, and then when I kind of became aware of that style of thing, it was all. Um, oh, what was the big tabletop game that was more of kind of like a fantasy war tabletop game? Warhammer. Warhammer, yeah. yeah. So it was in my city, like, by the time I kind of became aware of sort of, like, live multiplayer tabletop mm-hmm. games, it was Warhammer, which didn't really interest me. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. Although, asterisk on that, because, like, you ended up making some crazy scenery. Yeah, I used a lot of, like, I ended up buying, like, um, you know, all the Citadel paints and buying all the books on how to make Warhammer miniatures, but didn't actually do Warhammer stuff with them. But you did make these, these dioramas, 
Yeah. Which are like a lot of that same process, right? Like there's modeling goo and like cutting up the figures and stuff. Yeah. The process is sort of like halfway between the Warhammer sort of style of making miniatures and the HO, or like the model train style. A lot of the techniques, so there's two different sort of schools on how to make miniatures. Like they make rocks differently. They make, they make rocks differently? That's yeah. <laughs> Warhammer tends to use lots of foam. and Because with Warhammer rocks, you have to be able to put miniatures on top of them, so the tops need to be flat. Oh. Foam, where with railroad stuff, you use plaster. So it kind of just got into like how the two different schools make stuff. Uh, also, like wargaming scale is bigger because the figures are detailed. Yeah, and this scale doesn't make as much... like. There's one wargaming scale for the figures, and there's another wargaming scale for the vehicles. Mm. Because otherwise, the vehicles would be so big. So they're kind of planned with a couple of different scales all at once. Where with model railroads, they'll tend to stick to one scale, whether it be like HO or O or S or G, but that's sort of stick to one. When you go into the store, do they ever like you? Like, why are you buying this? Because, like, I assume that what you're buying doesn't make sense from any hobby perspective. <laughs> Not at all. Because <laughs> I'll buy stuff from every scale. Are they like that? That ain't gonna work. Yeah. <laughs> and I go to two different stores here in Toronto. I go to one, which is the the game store. I also like. I don't play magic cards, but I collect magic cards because I like the art. So I'll go and buy like wow. one pack <laughs> of like different sets of magic cards packs that like the, where the sets don't work with each other and then I'll buy a bunch of paint and then miniatures that aren't the same scale and the person working there thinks that I've got just no idea what's going on. He's <laughs> <laughs> really nice and he's used to me by now but I think in the beginning I think I, he couldn't really get a read on me. And the same thing with the model railroad stuff. I go in I buy all different scales and the person at the counter always sort of explains that they're different scales and they won't work together, but, you know, then I sort of tell them what I'm doing. What are you doing? Are you making your own world? Are you just having fun? Are you just still being a teenager? What are you doing? Uh, sort of all of those things. So, like, my sort of work day is either one of two different types of days. Either I wake up and I stay at home and I paint. I have a painting studio in my apartment. Or I take the bus uptown and I go to the sculpture studio. I try to go up there at least two days a week to break up the painting studio schedule and up there is lots of playing. It's like a room, there's no heat, there's no washroom or running water and it's just basically like a storage closet and I go in there and it's filled with toys and I just play around with toys all day. Build, <laughs> and I'm building like a big, you know, like lots of different dioramas that sort of all exist in the same world using all different scales and yeah, just sort of like build my little worlds up there. And then the work that I've been doing you know, then I come home and try to do little watercolors and paintings of, of kind of what I built that day. What is the water on the big diorama? There's like a big one called Ultima, which you showed at Ellie Gallery. Yeah. Like, what's the water made of? Is that resin? It's like a, a two-part epoxy resin. Oh, okay. Yeah, that stuff is really fun to smell. I remember making a painting <laughs> out of that, and it was just like, yeah, you can't be in the house for the next week. Does this world you're making, does it have... A sociology and rules to it, like this is Narnia, and this guy's name is blah blah blah. Is there anything like that? Because I know you said you liked writing. Basically, the way that I picture everything that I'm making is it all fits into the script in this like imaginary graphic novel that's sort of going on. It's easier for me to come up with ideas if things sort of like fit into a narrative, and I need to figure out a new right. 
a world that these characters are going to sort of like exist within. But like the point isn't the script and there'll never be a comic. But there is sort of like, you know, a bit of a loose story in the back of my head that kind of like to get new ideas for what I'm building. But I'm trying to make it more about tone and setting, you know, expressing like a sort of sublime feel through the through the habitats than I am actually sort of like trying to tell like a specific story, a narrative. In the earlier work, there were stories that went with some of these drawings and these are like early drawings and paintings of like sort of cyborg animals or strangely evolved animals. And it seemed like a sort of a future world without people in it or maybe a world that looked like ours by coincidence, but was really like an alternate timeline. But the diorama world looks like the buildings and the scenery are regular scenery, like a regular town, or at least a HO version of like a town. Yeah. But then there are the weird animals in it. Are they different universes? Like in, in my head, everything takes place basically on, this probably isn't going to make any sense, but it takes place on the corpse of Pan. Okay. So it's this sort of like hidden continent in the, the second emperor of Rome, like Tiberius, there's this like recorded, there's this thing of one of his, one of his men telling him that the, the god Pan is dead. Right. And as he's selling away and he is reflecting in his writing about what that means. If he was talking in metaphor about like man has conquered nature or if this person believed in Pan or whatever. In my head, everything is kind of taking place on the, on the corpse of this like, sort of like dead deity, which sort of defies like space and time. So it's a, it's just basically a world where things from the real world can exist. Things from sort of like my, you know, my fantasy and sci-fi musings can exist. And it's just sort of like a world where I am just sort of allowed to play with any idea that I have. So I guess in theory, everything I've ever sort of drawn exists in the same world where none of it really makes sense. You know? Okay. But I mean, you definitely go through like phases, like the early stuff, be like a lobster with a gun for a hand. And then other ones are just sort of like surreal. Like there's that funeral and there's like a lion at the funeral. You know, he's yeah. just there. It's not yeah. like a weird lion. It's just there's a lion at the funeral, you know. I think that my influences have changed a little bit. Like when I was a little bit younger, like, you know, the stuff you referenced earlier, I was kind of doing in college when I was in my early 20s. And I think I was way more into sci-fi and anime and stuff then. And now I'm kind of more interested in making things that seem strange, not necessarily just on their own, but through like juxtaposition. Mm. Like, a, like it's maybe more interesting for me to make like a strange setting that isn't entirely filled with fantastical objects and creatures that has a huge portion of just things that you see regularly. Mm-hmm. But maybe smaller things like, uh, you know, a man walking down the street with a lion at its side or people, you know, who are just inexplicably twice the size of the other people around them walking down the street, those things adding to make the diorama feel like a strange place Mm -hmm. instead of every character being like a weird, like blow your mind sci-fi sort of weird monster. But you're still making some blow your mind sci-fi weird monsters. Yeah, there's also... Your, your pictures are so intense, there's also just a huge factor. You know, when, it, when everyone looks at your things, like, he must have worked forever on this. 
How does yeah. he do that? There's a zillion butterflies the size of a nickel on yeah. this. Is that a point of pride for you? Is that, you know, what are you doing? Just flexing? It, it definitely used to be sort of like I, I'm trying to figure out now how to sort of make work without having to, not because I want to be lazy and make work that isn't as detailed, but make work that I can, don't have to spend so much time with because I have more sort of ideas that I want to get out. I don't necessarily want to spend, you know, that butterfly drawing with 20,000 butterflies took 18 months to do. Jesus uh, Christ. I mean, were you doing other things? Um, I was doing other things for about the first year. And then the last six months was just that. How big was that? Uh, four by six feet. And it, each butterfly was one centimeter by 0.7 centimeters. Were they real butterflies? You just made them up? Was... They were loosely based on source material. It wasn't like it didn't really matter to me if, if they were real or not, but they all had to be different from each other. To me, the easiest way to make them different was to work through butterfly books and have them loosely based on real butterflies so I wouldn't just kind of subconsciously keep doing the same thing. Yeah, when you're doing that, like, like you did that piece that was just like a butterflies over and over, and like I did a piece that was like 100 girls and 100 octopuses, and my thing was like I was always trying to make them look as different from each other as possible within that parameter. And then what it looks like is it it the final piece doesn't you don't even necessarily think realize that it's like a serialized piece with a hundred of the same thing over and over. Whereas yours really looks like it's very tightly controlled in a way that it's it's not just that there's a, there's so many butterflies, it's also that you fit them in this format and this line width and like all these other elements of the that serial work is very controlled. You know, there's no smearing on the, they're done in the similar way, but they're different enough from each other that they're different. Like, I guess it's not just like the discipline to do a lot of work. It's also the, the work itself is extraordinarily disciplined and clean in that one. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that you did that was serialized, but it's also like the, the discipline about how you touch the paper, I guess. Yeah, I with that work, I wanted like I guess it served a few things. One thing was it would just be sort of a warm up before my other studio work in the day. I'd spend half an hour on that to sort of get like loose and get thinking about what I was going to do for the day. And then the other thing was just sort of trying to figure out how to see like you know when you read stuff about. Uh, zoology, you hear about like mass migration patterns or like huge, you know, millions of monarchs going um, down through the continent and their migration pattern. And I wanted to try to do something that would give me an idea of what it's like to see a very large number of something. I had heard about a migration of 20,000. There's, there's just talking about like a large group of butterflies. And I wanted to sort of see what that would look like on a page. Hmm. So it's a lot of work to just, I mean, I guess I could have just copy and pasted you know, on a computer, but okay. I wanted to, yeah, just build, like, I wanted to make something. Yeah, no way. Why don't marathon runners just take the bus? No way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, just to see what, what you know, what large amounts of simple things look like. But it's also the way that they're organized reminds me of, like, stacks of emojis or sprites, like that sort of geometry and the way they touch each other just barely and stuff. I think that from the like the old manuals for like Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior and the stuff I grew up with when I was a kid, I think that's how I'm always going to naturally organize things. When I think of like doing a drawing or whatever, I always think of lining things up cleanly on a grid. 
Also, I have a question about like the callouts. Like you have pictures, which like it'll be a couple years ago, five, six years ago now. It's like a drawing of a thing, like a weird monster. And then there'll be like a line to some detail about it. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's like pictures and it'll be a grid of pictures like mm-hmm. next to the larger image that it's calling out or it'll be some detail. And you're talking about black and white drawings, right? Yeah, there's black and white drawings. Like there's one, socially active members of the underworld immigrant community, right. for instance, from 2014. Like there's a big sloth guy and then there's like a dot and you've got like a line and then at the end of the line there's a crown. Yeah, those are drawings. So those black and white drawings are drawings I had up at the show where I showed the Ultima diorama. Yeah. And they were sort of my way of trying to explain what was happening in the diorama. So what they are is sort of, you know, sort of relying a bit on the language of, you know, scientific nature illustration to show the relationships between different creatures and also relying on the language of like RPG art to show what types of weapons and powers creatures have and try to bring that together into one piece. So when you see like the um, dotted lines going to a, a grid, that tends to... So you have the creature, and then you have a, a dotted line going to a grid, and that is what I was using in these drawings to signify their diet. Uh, okay. So those would be the things that they would eat. And the objects around them are sort of different types of things. Like, uh, So on that one, the crown, so that is um, like a naked mole rat, like, sort of like human hybrid community, and that crown sort of is supposed to denote that this uh, individual is the queen. Okay. So this is the one in charge of all of the other sort of like underlings, all the other naked mole rat underlings. Uh, beside it is sort of its habitat, which is the, right. the burrowing hole underneath. And then other things on it, on that piece, you've got that sort of like uh, satyr type creature and it's got uh, its weapons, it's got its relatives, it's got its diet and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, some of it is is legible in the sense of like, oh, that's, you know, obviously like the mole rat has that like underground drawing. You're like, oh, it like crawls underground or something. But mm-hmm. I'm interested in the use of like formats that communicate that don't communicate because they look cool. <laughs> and right. I'm like wondering like to you, how important is it that other people understand it? How important is it to you that it actually is signifying something and not kind of arbitrary? Like, because you're kind of using a format that you know, on the one hand, it communicates something to you. On the other hand, you're the only person to whom it might communicate, maybe. And you already knew the information it's communicating. And so is it a false use of the communication format or is it a thing where you're hoping people will slowly figure it out or does that not matter but it just looks cool where, where do you feel you fall in there <laughs> yeah. how important is that does it look cool factor <laughs> i mean i, I think, think yeah. it's like important that it looks cool but i think also like when you're making it a mm. lot of things you could stick in those boxes that would look yeah. cool but you've chosen things that have meaning i think to me what's important are two things that it does means something like that I can't do something that just looks cool because it looks cool and it actually I couldn't defend like why why it's present on the piece you know every symbol and every creature on a piece like this does need to be there for a reason and does need to illustrate the sort of lifestyle of the creatures I'm depicting and then I think equally importantly it needs to look cool you know I don't want it to be 
exploring, but I also don't want it to just be like meaningless bullshit. I guess what I mean is like, is it important that it communicates it to anyone but you? And if it's not, then, but you already know it. So is it a weird paradox? I think that there's enough, like, although I think it is a bit opaque when you first look at it, what, you know, these sort of charts are representing and what the relationship between the creatures is. I think that there's enough sense to the way it's lined out, laid out that, um, I think that if a viewer spends time with it, they can put the relationships together in their head while looking at it. To me, I, I like the idea of someone standing in front of one of these drawings for several minutes and trying to figure out the relationship between them and then doing it in some cases and then feeling somewhat rewarded and included in the, you know, in the piece. Mm -hmm. It's not immediately obvious, but I think that with a bit of thought, you can, and not like it's brilliant stuff, but you can sort of figure out what I'm trying to depict through just a little bit of like observation. And I think that, that makes, like, I think people sort of enjoy these pieces because of that, because immediately it does seem sort of opaque and a bit off-putting and sort of needlessly sort of complicated. And then with time, it kind of like reveals a little bit of a, a narrative. And it talks about the setting by describing the inhabitants of the setting without there actually being any words or a story. Is part of it like having looked at Japanese stuff and having to sort of make sense of it? Yeah, maybe. Also, I think part of it is probably when I'm young, spending those hundreds of hours in front of the National Geographic before I actually know how to read. So you're like aware of systems, but you're not sure what the system is. Yeah, at the, at the time, looking at the, you know, they used to have some really nice illustrators in the, in the 70s and 80s National Geographic. And looking at those, I mean, I can't quite remember. Like, I remember looking at old charts and not quite knowing what's going on, but really enjoying the art and bringing out my sort of sketchbook as a kid and drawing from them. And I think that a little bit of what I'm doing here is probably trying to recreate that experience. You had a sketchbook as a kid. <laughs> yeah, You didn't just have a bunch of pa typing paper. No, I... I who were who these parents? Were they, were, they, were they arty people? Were they animal people? Were they... They're just cool. Like, my parents are both uh, working class. They're both immigrants. From my where? From Italy. My dad's from southern Italy. Working class um, farm community. Mm -hmm. My mom's from... Australia, working class sheep farm. Okay, so they both work with the animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting right to it now. <laughs> my dad was young when he moved to Canada. My dad was 10. Okay. My mom was 18. Was your dad in the pizza business? Yeah. <laughs> Did, I do remember you saying that. I thought this was based on nothing for a second. No. I, like, what? <laughs> I mean, okay, I think that this sort of fits into why my parents were so liberal. My dad worked for um, a telecommunications company it was a smaller town with this big company. And when my dad was getting closer to retirement age, the company shut down, uh, laying off everybody. And, you know, my dad now suddenly being in his late 50s, working for a company since he was in his 20s with uh, no job and no means of income. Just a very small pension from that. And, and my mom had always just, she had worked here and there, like, you know, at a bank or at a pharmacy or whatever, but didn't have her own consistent career. Uh, and then they decided to open a pizzeria. And then that didn't go super well. And they sold it. And I feel like my dad, like, worked hard his whole life for the company. You know, went, went there every day and did his job. And in the very end, got fucked. I don't know. Like, we've never really spoken about it. But I think that him sort of experiencing that made him a lot, like, 
more capable of being like, yeah, go to art school and work for yourself and be your own boss. At no point were my parents not as like entirely supportive as they as they could, which is really nice, you know. Yeah. They always said in school or whatever to like, you know, like work hard, get good grades and stuff. But when I told them I want to go to art school, I'm sure that when I wasn't in the room, they were just like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> I don't know if this is really a good idea. But to me, they're super supportive. I talk to, you know, my parents every week or two and they ask for an update on the studio. They're, they're really into the art stuff. There's actually a tech blogger at a blog called Rib- Ribbon Farm who talks about how like, the assumption that you would follow the rules and be good at school and then you will have a prosperous career is increasingly untrue in certain places in certain times. And so actually the most conservative thing you can do sometimes is just not go to school at all and obsess over some hobby because right. that's actually like more job secure in certain situations than others. Sure. And he was saying like he grew up in India mostly and then like he had followed the rules for a long time and then was not getting anywhere with it. Different times and places actually demand that you just be like, yeah, fuck it, that, that systemic thinking isn't actually working even if you have like the most like regular ordinary aspirations. So your parents were cool and they gave you a sketchbook and you were playing video <laughs> games and looking at National Geographic's Anything other than that happened in high school uh, or college to change that or that was, you know, uh, unusual or we wouldn't expect or know about? You know, I went through different things at one point. I thought, I'd, like I said, and wanted to be a writer. Yeah, and when did you decide you're going to be an artist? Probably OAC, which is grade 13 that doesn't exist here. But um, when I was in high school, it existed. I always did well in the sciences, too, in school. So I always bounced around between maybe zoology or writing or filmmaking. When I was in grade 13, I was really lucky. This young teacher, although I did like my previous art teacher, um, this young teacher came in who was just four years older than me. He did skip grades in school and uh, became my art teacher, and we became close friends. And he was like, okay, I know that you're looking into getting into film or you don't know what you're going to do, but I really think you should apply for painting school. So this guy sort of came in right at the very end, like a few months before you know, we were sending out applications for post-secondary, and he encouraged me to apply for art school. So pretty much just like grade 13, I decided that that was what I was going to do. I always knew that I was going to draw every day, but I never really knew if it was going to be exactly what I did for a living or if it was going to be some other like creative sort of career, you know? And you did graffiti for a while in Toronto, right? Yeah, uh, when I went to move to Toronto from my small town, I did lots of street art. Like a lot, a lot of it wasn't like the type of graffiti you'd think of. It was like not tons of spray painting. A lot of it was wheat pasting or a lot of stickers. And kind of back then, we like it was during the time of like backpack rap was cool and street art was cool and going out and do big wheat paste. I have no idea what backpack rap is. It's like <laughs> it's, underground hip hop, right? Is back, backpack rap. Yeah, it's something, I mean, I haven't heard anyone say backpack rap in like 10 years, but at the time, it would kind of be like maybe what you'd consider to be like conscious hip-hop. Sort of just Are like, you a hip-hop guy? Is that your thing? Yeah, yeah, I've always just been really into that stuff, yeah. Oh, I thought so, you'd be like a metal guy because of all the Final <laughs> Fantasy. Who knew? Yeah, it's funny. If people talk about bands with guitars in it, in musical instruments, I basically have no idea what anyone's talking about. But you're like this like company flow and LP and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I grew up with uh, that, the Weathermen, 
like a big a group on that label. What do you think of like stuff now, like Run the Jewels and like Tyler and stuff? Are you into that? I like Run the Jewels. I don't know about Tyler so much because just some of like I just think he's kind of annoying. <laughs> Like, I like that kid that he's with, Earl. Yeah, Earl Sweatshirt's fucking awesome. Um, it's just mellow for me. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, he's the I, new Tom Waits! Really? This rap right now that, I, that I'm into is mostly, like, have you heard of the Underachievers? It's like this Beast Coast sort of movement. It's, like, ASAP through is sort of the most famous sort of ambassadors of Beast Coast, which is, like, the new East Coast New York rap. So, like, Aesop Rocky, not Aesop Rock. Yeah, not Aesop Rock. Although, this time that we're talking about, Aesop Rock would definitely have been one of the MCs. So, you're saying that Aesop Rocky is the new Aesop Rock? (laughs) (laughs) In a certain sense. I don't know. I'm not necessarily into them, but I I think that, like, it's an interesting time for rap right now because I think that the best rapper is also the most famous rapper. Like, I think that Kendrick Lamar is, like, the most talented living rapper. I thought you were going to say Kanye. No. <laughs> Do you like Eminem? Yeah, I think he's fucking amazing. I think he's. I think Eminem is like one of the best ten like living rappers. Like I don't know about. He made a lot of really like radio friendly. He made a lot of music that's not nearly as good as it could have been because he was making stuff that would be really popular with people that weren't necessarily into rap music. Okay, this isn't a, a rap podcast, but I agree with you 100% about that with so many rappers because I feel like you're really good at writing lyrics and rapping and now you have this chorus for no fucking reason. It's ruined the song. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I feel like we are in the golden age of get your fucking backup singers off the fucking radio. It's like, yeah. it's like all these people started their careers as the Rolling Stones in the 70s. Which, of course, I said a guitar band, so you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just feel like it's weird because you the first thing you hear from a lot of people is their bloated post-rock star album. And it's like, well, what were you like before this? Because I bet I would actually like... But I do think it's interesting because you came up like a little bit later than I did. And John... Like, there's a lot of hip-hop people that were like referencing video games and Transformers and stuff. Oh, yeah. You're all in the same pack. Like, you were making, like, a visual thing that was a lot of sort of the same references, you know? When, when skateboarders started to listen to rap. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, and when, like, MF Doom, who was just, like, this huge comic book nerd, was one of the most popular MCs. It's just, like, this, like, dude who would make, like, fantasy rap about superhero shit. I always think, like, half shark, half alligator, half man. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's, like, totally your jam. Totally. So yeah, it was an exciting time. Like, I mean, growing up in the small town, I was into like um, Gangstar and Biggie and shit. And then found sort of stuff that was like that, you know, it was still rap, but it was like a little bit nerdier and it's just really fun. And I met lots of like really similarly minded graffiti artists and MCs and stuff in Toronto. I hung out with these guys and um, did lots of, you know, street art together. It was a really fun time in college. How come you didn't move to New York or Los Angeles like the textbook of every artist is supposed to do? I, I did move to New York. Very, did you really? <laughs> yeah. I moved to New York on uh, September 7th, 2008. Back then, I was three years out of school, and I was selling a, got like a piece or two every month and making a, you know, a, a living that was decent enough that I could move to another city and be okay. I had enough money to live for six months and I was selling some work and I've never sold tons of work, but 
I was living off my art somewhat comfortably as long as I was careful with my money. You had a little place and, and it was in Toronto in the beginning, but you were living off your work at, starting in college. Yeah. And it wasn't grad school either, right? It was undergrad. Wow. Undergrad, yeah. I never did grad school. But I've always been able to live off my work and not because of that doesn't really like indicate that I had a super successful career. It, also, it indicated that I was also really good at surviving off of very little money. Are you like a ramen guy? I was, for sure. Like, I used to live under my friend's ping pong table for 50 bucks a month. But you also, like, had, like, roommates. <laughs> like, you had, like, two dudes in the same studio, right? Yeah, then I had two guys, same studio, in little cubicles without roofs. A very small living area and a nice big studio area. Like, it was always important for me to have a better studio than, than an apartment. Yeah, in college and stuff, I was. For a period, I did work weekends at an art supply store. But I ended up leaving that job in 2005, I think. But yeah, I moved to New York, and uh, one week after I moved to New York, the Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Immediately, I went from selling, you know, between one and three pieces a month to not selling anything for six months. And then uh, sort of my money sort of dwindled, and then I got a tooth infection. And then oh, <laughs> I ended up having to come home because I was just like, I need to go home and get some like, free health care. That's it, America brain drain right there. <laughs> Didn't something really terrible happen with you and the dentist? Oh, uh, yeah. C can you share that just for the entertainment value of it or, or no good? No, no, yeah, I'll share it. So I didn't get too into, I didn't want, because right after the sad story about my dad losing his job, I didn't want to make the New York story as sad as it actually was. But <laughs> okay. When I was in New York, what happened was basically I, uh, I got that tooth infection, but I, did, I wasn't really willing to go home yet because I felt like I, if I went home, I wasn't going to come back. So I tried to ride it out. I got a wicked infection. Ended up having to go to a, an emergency dentist at 2 in the morning uh, in New York um, who showed up uh, drunk with a girl who was also drunk. And I was crying. And I was like, I, I've got so much pain. I can't use, like, my left arm. The infection, like, the left wow. side of my face was all frozen and my left arm wasn't working. And I was just, like, outside his office waiting for him, like, crying. And he came and he set me up. He gave me these pills. Uh, he did this like 360 scan thing. It's like, oh yeah, your wisdom teeth are really, really, really infected. Gave me painkillers and gave me um, antibiotics. The antibiotics sort of worked for a few days and then they didn't really work. And then a couple weeks later, I was back in the same place. And then my, I had to call back to Toronto and a big group of my friends ended up I'll come to Toronto on the bus, each taking two items of mine and then taking those back to Toronto on the bus and taking me to the emergency dentist. Wow, and nice when I was getting my wisdom teeth, I went to this cheap dentist first because in Canada you do have free health care, but you don't have free dental care. So I went to this cheaper dentist. I was getting my wisdom teeth taken out. Everything was cool. He took the first one out. And then with the second one, I could tell that he started to become uncomfortable and I could tell his assistant was becoming uncomfortable and I couldn't figure out what was going on and then he left the room for a really long time and then I can see through because it's glass I'm in a glass room and he's in a glass room I can see through and he's on the internet on Google and I'm like oh god this is really bad and then the assistant starts crying and I'm like what's going on and she's like 
uh, when we took the, when I took the x-rays of your wisdom teeth, I actually never got all the way down to the roots and I didn't realize before we started the operation that we have no idea where the root of your tooth connects to the nerve. <laughs> and we don't want to dig in there too much. Is it because, because they've never done dentist before or <laughs> is it because something so fucked up it happened to your head? Yeah, I don't know what had happened. Like when I went in for the consultation, he was like, oh, you're an artist. That's cool. He's like, I know I'm a dentist, but I actually consider myself a photographer. I'm really into photography. And that should have been the first sign of like, hang the fuck out of that office. <laughs> but he was, I liked, like, he was young and cool and he was really into art. And we were talking about art and I loved him. And then when this happened, it was, it was going down really bad. He was on the phone trying to get his friend to come in to finish the operation. Oh. The girl started crying, and then he was in, and he was shaking. He was probably about my age. He was shaking. He was really nervous, and he dropped the scalpel into my mouth. And then it <laughs> stuck in, like, in the back of my throat, and I started coughing blood everywhere. <laughs> and the girl's crying. And he's like, I'm so sorry, and it was awful. Um, so he ended up just sawing, <laughs> he ended up sawing the tooth in half, closing it up. And just saying that it's going to like fuse with my jaw, it's going to be no problem. I ended up going to another dentist who took the other two out because he already had taken one out, no problem. But now when I'm sick, and right now it's happening, or I can tell I'm going to get sick because that tooth that's like half a tooth infused to my jaw starts to hurt. So right now, like that last couple of days, that tooth started to hurt. I'm like, okay, there's a cold coming on. For some reason, it's like it's the Achilles heel of my body, you know? And yeah, it was the worst thing. And like, I went into this situation being like really scared of dentists already. Like I didn't have my wisdom teeth taken out when I was young because I was too scared. I probably should have. And then went into what was like the worst dental situation. That sounds like literally the worst dental situation. Like, (laughs) I feel like other than like 1930s mob dentistry as like intentional torture, I can't really think of a worse... Maybe, oh, also, like, the Middle Ages, when your dentist was your barber. It's your barber, yeah, and they do it in the city square or whatever. Yeah, it was the worst. Like, I mean, it was like I was literally coughing blood all over this crying dentist uh, and dental assistant. It was, like, the most horrifying thing. Yeah, it was awful. Didn't charge me. Do you feel as though that (laughs) informed your work? Yeah, bring it around, Zach. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just this like, awful moment I try not to think of. I ended up drawing uh, a little tooth monster that was... You drew a tooth monster. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I basically, like, that was kind of, like, when I stopped doing the Mylar work and when that stuff happened, it was sort of like a, a bit of a break in my career. Like, the only time where I took several months where I think I burnt myself out and physically I really wasn't feeling well. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, you said that when you were working in New York, like you moved to New York and you didn't go outside and then you hurt yourself so bad you had to move home. That yeah. sounds like exactly what happened. And I gained a lot of weight. I was also probably drinking too much and taking the painkillers while I was drinking too much and I got kind of like a lot heavier than I've ever been. Mm. And sort of stopped making work. For, not stop making work. I mean, I was in the studio every day, but just sort of stopped like feeling passionate and just felt physically so bad. That was like right before the black and white, like repeated ones. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of this gap where if you look at my CV and look at my work, not a lot was going on really. And I think I just burnt myself out. I think that I, uh, 
yeah, physically, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, back then too, I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly healthy person now. I go to the gym. I don't smoke and stuff like that. Back then I, I was smoking lots of cigarettes and drinking lots of coffee and, you know, drinking lots of beer. And I think I just needed to get back on track. Yeah. So I had a little bit of a burnout. I think I was working too much, not taking care of my body and needed to sort of reset myself a little bit. Um, But yeah, when that happened, like 2008, with the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, I got hit really hard. Like that's when everything sort of stopped for a while. I got a job, a part-time job moving furniture for this guy who had like a furniture warehouse, getting paid less than minimum wage for some reason. I don't know why I took that job because I think minimum wage, you can get paid anything. But doing that, I started at six in the morning. Like it was a really weird sort of thing. But yeah, now luckily... My teeth are fine, and I don't. Teeth are have back, to deal. and you're back. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was strange. I mean, I mean, I think it's good. Like, I mean, I'm happy that I went through the physical stuff all at once and made changes, and went through the art stuff all at once and made changes. And you know, I feel like in a way, it's lucky it didn't stretch out for years. It's just like a bunch of kind of like bad stuff all happened at once. It got taken care of, you know. Stemming from moving to New York. <laughs> yeah. I know. And I was so excited. Like when I moved down, I was like, I'm moving to New York. Like this is the city for me. Everything is going so great. And just very quickly within one week, everything, you know, the financial, everything changed, you know. And what part of New York were you in? I forgot. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I was on the L and I was at a stop that started with the letter M. Montrose or Morgan? Montrose, I think. Yeah. In this like warehouse area where you got off the subway (laughs) and then you walked 15 minutes into areas where it was just like... There's like a metal, like a sheet metal factory across the street from me, and there are no real houses. Okay. Yeah. Other than that, like I still, I haven't been to New York in a few years now, but I did love my neighborhood and I met some nice people. I just probably kept to myself a little bit more than I should have. So I ended up uh, leaving, yeah, and getting set back up in uh, Toronto. I liked living in New York and stuff, but I mean, I also realized when I was there that at that point, I'm a little bit more like doing different types of things now, but at that point, I wasn't going outside anyway. Like, I spent four months living in New York, and I think I saw my friends like just a few times. I basically had just, like, I was a shut in in Brooklyn or whatever. And because you were making just art? Worked, just you just yeah, it's just making art, like... really enjoying the studio and having fun making stuff, but wasn't going out that much. And I don't think I really did it right. Like, I had a deadline when I moved to New York, too. I was working on a solo show that I needed to have done in like a few months. So I moved there and I basically just worked. I think I should have moved where I just had given myself a little bit more time to kind of like go to more shows, meet more people, you know. There's a weird thing of like street art has to get done fast. It's like big lines, unless you're doing a stencil, mostly unless you're doing like a, a paste up. It's like one kind of work. And like the kind of work that you eventually got known for, which is like super intricate, is like a completely different kind of work. The speed of the line is slower and it's a more dense and intricate work. And it's interesting that there aren't that many artists who use, especially your early work, was using these big, long, gestural, graffiti-like lines and shapes and subjects, but it had a level of detail that would it be impossible in street art and the color and stuff? Yeah, like for a few years in school, pretty much all I did was street art. And I didn't do any really studio work. And I think that when I got my first studio, I was just really excited about having time for the first time. So I would do this work that was sort of like the street art and then realized that I wasn't 
in a big rush to get out of there and I didn't have to look over my shoulder and I could actually stay and spend some time and see where the work would take me. So yeah, it did become this weird sort of hybrid sort of thing where it was initially would start something very loose and then I'd go in and work in the details. I'm trying to figure out how to make work now that doesn't necessarily take me as long as it used to. Like I said before, because I want <laughs> You've to... You've had it. <laughs> yeah. Let me I, leave the house. Yeah, totally. Like, I want to make lots of things. Like, it's not like I want to spend less time in the studio. I just want to see... You, you know, have more ideas than you have time to make them, perhaps? Yeah, sure. You know, for a while, like a couple of years ago, I was making 12 pieces a year because it took exactly one month to do a piece. And I'd spend full-time hours on that piece. And But I think that I'd like... You know, I think I got more than 12 pieces a year worth of ideas. And I'm trying to figure out how to get them out a bit faster. And the watercolors, like we've recently started using watercolor as opposed to just the pen and ink or the mylar work. Watercolor can do a lot of the talking where it would take me, you know, days of crosshatching and now I can throw down a wash in five minutes and it's great. I know you were at Freiser because you were in a group show at Freiser and then they were like, hey, you should keep showing here. Yeah, that you got me. Yes, well, yeah. kind of. Basically, my girlfriend found your work in a book Right. Oh, yeah, that pictoplasma book. From- Which I don't know how you got in that, um, but maybe somebody listening would love to know how you got ended up in. There was like, it was like a book of character design. Yeah, it was called Pictoplasma 2. There was a guy in Toronto who I really looked up to in college named uh, Derek Hodginson. Uh, Madrill was his name, and he was a character designer, artist, sort of graffiti guy, a little bit older than me. I really liked him, and he was in this book called Pictoplasma 1 that I bought because he was in the book. And then I saw a call for submissions for Pictoplasma 2. Well, there's that. Derek was in it. Then maybe, you know, then they're into showing people from Canada. Maybe <laughs> I'll send my work. And, and I got into it. And I thought, and it changed everything. I got into first show in New York through the launch of Pictoplasma, first show in Europe. And then you, your girlfriend found the book and hooked me up with uh, the New York gallery. Yeah, I mean, she just like literally was like, Zach, you should see this. And I was like, oh, that, this guy's good. And then I told Fryzer, which doesn't happen that often, just everyone else listening. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what happens, 90% of the time I show my, my gallery like an artist and they're like, that's great. You know, like yeah. when you were in Pictoplasma, like other people picked you up out of that book. Let me think now. Because you've had shows, there's... Toronto, which I assume they just picked you up out of school or something, but you've also showed in other places, like all over the world, you know? Yeah. Right now I'm showing with a gallery in Leipzig, a gallery in Paris, a gallery in Toronto, and was showing with the gallery in New York. I did get like recognition. I got lots of emails. I sold work and I got into the, into, um, the show that you put on through that book. The other work I think was book launch related shows. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they did the Picoplasma 2 launch in New York and the Picoplasma 2 launch in Germany. And, but it didn't really lead to big showing opportunities. I mean, it, just being included in the show in New York and getting picked up by that gallery was enough. But also made me feel like I was part of a community at that point. Mm-hmm. That I could get picked up by the larger sort of publications and that people would pay attention and that I was more than skiddy uh, 20-year-old doing the you know, straight art and not getting any feedback or recognition or whatever. It was just, uh, it was definitely good for me. When that book came out, I remember like getting it in the mail and being like so, so, so excited. And I got the email from you about the show being, you know, just very excited and realizing that these were sort of like breakthrough moments. Did they tell you in the book, like, we won't pay you, but it'll be good exposure? Yeah, I didn't get paid. 
So they were actually telling the truth. <laughs> he just ruined it for everyone, Nick. Yeah, that's probably the only time that's ever happened. Yeah. I mean, I got a copy of the book, so I would have bought it anyway. So I guess there you go. Made you made like 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the earliest stuff I remember you making, the stuff that was in Pictoplasma, it was like these black and white drawings on like scratch board that look very much like you started out doing graffiti with the big monsters with big faces and then going, oh, I have time to fill in because I'm in studio, not on the street. And then when you had your first show at Freiser, I remember you going like, I've never done anything in color. I want to do something in color now. And you developed this like animation looking acetate style with the color. And yeah. we hadn't seen anything in you that was color, but that was when you started doing it. What was that like, like making that first leap? It was cool. It was what it you know it feels like to be working on the dioramas now or what it felt like to work with pen and ink for the first time it was just liberating and like at that time a lot of my inspiration came from animation and when I was growing up a thing I, I really grew up with too was uh, yeah Japanese like anime and I wanted work that sort of reflected sort of like my influences so I started doing paintings that were uh, inked on one side with uh, black ink and painted on the back with uh, animation paint that would make one large, very intricate sort of animation cell. At the time, I was also really into Takashi Murakami and like the super flat stuff. Uh, really into Dalek, who's an artist that a few years later I ended up doing, uh, really lucky to be able to do a show with, and he's a big hero of mine. And uh, really influenced by, yeah, those artists and wanted to do something that was really illustrative and flat, and the animation stuff worked really well for me. I was waiting for you to say Akira in there. Akira, big time, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, where's Akira? But I also feel like Akira is like was the first big fully animated Japanese movie that we got over here in the U.S. Yeah. But I imagine that by the time that you were coming up, Akira was one of maybe five or six, seven, eight movies that you could have seen. You know, like yeah. you weren't there waiting. It's not the first one I saw. Yeah. You know, it was definitely the first one that was released. But by the time I you know, in the mid-90s or whatever, like, I had already... I think I saw Ghost in the Shell before I saw Kira. And I think I saw Ninja Scroll, which I think is, like, the coolest anime no, ever. Yeah, that's a before. great, yeah. Yeah, that was so good. Before I saw Akira. And then when I did see Akira, obviously, it was life-changing. What really did it for me was the manga. Like, I bought the manga when I was in... With my student loan money, I bought the whole set of the <laughs> mangas. And... uh when I was doing that body of work for Ferguson Fraser, I had the Akira graphic novel stack right beside my A-frame painting board there where I was working. And I would be painting and looking through Akira and reading. And I mean, obviously, the manga is not using the, the cell animation style of stuff, but I don't know if that guy's work really did it for me, for sure. The specific colors you use in the early color stuff are like a very specific palette. It's not like you like remade your palette for each painting. There's like this sort of, it's like a mylar yellow, like this sort of greeny, synthetic, whitey yellow. And mm -hmm. there's like this pink, which I think of as like being like some sort of like early Cartoon Network pink or something, like a sort of <laughs> salmon-y. Like they're very specific, synthetic feeling colors Yeah. for because this natural world. Like... Because I don't know a thing about coloring. Like now when I paint, I have a, a double primary sort of like painting system where I have the warm and the cold of everything. And, you know, and I read about painting and figured out how to get the colors I want. Back then I just ordered, I think literally I had like 
like bubblegum pink and flesh color, like just weird animation colors that people would buy. And I have no idea how they were made, but they were like just the the colors that they would sell with names on them, and I'd use those to try to paint. But I have no idea what pigments actually went into I mean, them. they were very effective. Like, they just, it's interesting because they are so, there's so much about your work which seems so controlled. It, and I feel like there's like a hip-hop metaphor in it, and that it's like, it's broken up into these specific units of like, each, there's lines, there's a rhythm, there's a beat, it repeats. There's like a, a loop, like you can imagine it being made of these like specific simple elements that then you make those elements complicated by pushing them together in different ways. And it's like these colors repeat, like you do these dotted lines, which are just clearly like dot, 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 <laughs> dot. But then in that moment, there's like a belief that it will be expressive as a whole. Right. But the little moment is very technical. Right which feels very hip-hop-y to me in some way. Like, <laughs> when you're making guitar music, like, a lot of those guys do not know what any of those machines they're playing with do. They just hit the strings, and it's, like, right. a physically expressive gesture, and it makes an expressive sound. Whereas, like, you can't be a, a, you can't be a producer doing that. You know what I mean? You have to know how the beats go and where they line up. And there just seems to be, like, a faith in, like, using these little elements will add up to a... Yeah, I think at the... Time. I mean, I think that that was what was. You know, I draw so differently now. It's hard to sort of snap back into the what I was thinking when I was making that work. But I do think I was making. I was thinking about lots of little elements coming together to make the the whole. Like not so different than the big butterfly grid and stuff. I was very patient. I had no problem spending a whole night doing a square inch of a drawing or something, knowing that after you know a couple of weeks or whatever it would pay off and all come together. Yeah, back then, I just, I don't know, I loved nothing more than just putting my head down and having the finest nib possible and listening to, you know, a good book on tape or something and or some rap music or whatever and just working all night and doing little dots. Well, let's talk about now then. <laughs> you did that, you did new stuff in color. And then yeah. you started doing the things which were more like naturalist, which we've talked a lot about, like, like 20,000 butterflies or whatever. Yeah. Right. And that was like black and white mostly, and you were yeah. super obsessive. What interests me about those especially, or at least one thing that sticks out to me, is the way you manage to make things that on paper in concept are the same thing over and over look very different. Did you sketch each one of those little faces out first before you drew it, or did you just make it up as you went along? Like when you did tons of birds, or when you did like tons of canines. Whenever you do like lots of grids of like similar things next to each other. Yeah, I didn't sketch anything. I'd go right from the ink. But with those, because I work flat, yeah. horizontal, I wasn't using uh, the dipping nib, which I normally do. I was using ballpoint pen. And with the ballpoint pen, I feel like there was so much control that I wouldn't need to sketch anything. Sometimes with the dipping nib, like with the crow quill, there is a slight element which is exciting that Sometimes I'll catch the nib in a certain way and it's going to splash a little bit of ink and then that will sort of dictate what happens next. That doesn't happen with the ballpoints. When I'm doing the grids, I feel like basically I don't need to sketch anything. I just sort of do it. So you know that each one of those birds is going to look like a bird when you're done. You have total confidence. I mean, if you look close enough, some of them don't look like anything. <laughs> but, you know, if there's 10,000 of them, it doesn't matter, you know? 
That's a good point. I never really thought of it that way. Because <laughs> I always look at them and I'm like, how did you know it was going to... Because if I drew like things that close together, I'd be like, one of them would just be a blob. <laughs> yeah. One of them I would cross out. You know, like <laughs> just the confidence of that is, is awesome. Some of them, yeah, some of them yeah. don't look like anything. Some of them, if you look at the really big butterfly grid, there are some areas where it's just black because I <laughs> smeared my hand through something. And there's just some black dots and it's nothing is there. And I just sort of figured that no one's going to notice it because there's other shit to look at, you know? Okay, so we, we zoom through that stuff, and now we're getting up to, like, where you are now with the watercolor drawings. How do you feel like they're different to you? I feel like there's things that are happening on the page that I'm not deciding to do, which for me is really exciting. So with the watercolor, I feel like... I mean, it's still watercolor and ink, so it's still fairly controlled watercolor. It's not, you know, it's not super loose. It's, it's controlled within a you know, a frame. But sometimes when I'm painting, sometimes I do wet on wet, I mix on the page and there's things happening that I wasn't expecting to happen. It makes it kind of like a more exciting process for me because I've spent, you know, pretty much every day for like my entire life sitting at a desk drawing things. And when you kind of know what's going to happen every day, it can sometimes be a little bit dull. But the watercolor, I find, makes the process a little bit more exciting because things are happening on the page. Colors are mixing in ways that I don't expect. Maybe as I get used to using the watercolor, that won't happen as much and it won't be as exciting and I'll have to move on to something else. But for now, it's just like fun things are happening in the studio that, you know, that I can't foresee. I assume you're not married. No, I'm not married. I have you a married? I have a girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, I got a girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You just painted this picture of, like, I'm in this studio all day. I love it. Listen to book on tape. Like, what girl are you finding that gets down with this? <laughs> I, my girlfriend's really patient. Ladies love a detail-oriented man, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been really lucky to meet, like, a, a, a really, really patient uh, woman that has, you know, she's got her own sort of interests that are sort of solo interests. She has her own company. She likes spending lots of time alone, too. And we do get together and, and do things, but we both allow ourselves a lot of separate studio time, which is nice. sort of nice. I used to, you know, spend pretty much all of my time in the studio. And now, you know, I leave at a certain time to go home and spend some time with my girlfriend. Or I take a day off, you know, in a week or the second half of the day. I work in the morning and then spend uh, that evening and, and night, you know, doing something really nice and date-wise with my girlfriend. What I kind of found with uh, relationship stuff is it's nice to, if we're not going to spend tons of time with each other, it's nice to make that time worthwhile. So we'll go and go to a show or do something really fun during that time. Um, I but yeah, show. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to one of those in a long time. I saw a really good show a couple years ago, and then that's about it. You know, I also, on the weekends, I bartend every Saturday and every Sunday night. That sometimes makes me not want to be... At, oh, yeah. at bars when I'm not at work. You know, I, I get my fill on the weekend, that's for sure. Mm. I definitely feel like you get to see the pageantry of life being a bartender, for sure. Oh, yeah. It's all so good because, you know, I only work two nights a week, and I kind of, kind of cover being able to be in the studio five days a week. Fucking Toronto, man. What the hell? Yeah, I just work the two nights. I have really cheap rent. I live above the bar right. that I work at. And then my studio was really cheap. Like, I paid 250 What happened to your assistant? I don't know. He's around. But I haven't had 
anyone in a couple of years. Like I had someone help me with that big sculpture just because it was, it was really nice to have a second person just sort of helping me like build the buildings and stuff. But that's been a couple of years now. My studio is kind of too small to have an assistant. So did you just stop because it was too small or because you weren't making, like you weren't selling stuff or just because you were like, uh, fuck it? Kind of a bunch of things. Like I wasn't selling stuff. So after a certain point, I couldn't afford it. Right. And then also with certain types of work, it makes sense. Like with uh, sculptures and stuff, it doesn't make sense if I'm doing a small, like the turtle or the dinosaur guy. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense because I'm, you know, I'm building those things myself or whatever. With the, something like a big city, there's always sort of smaller jobs that are sort of easy to sort of like parcel off and just be like, okay, can you spray paint yeah. all of these doors or something right. or all of these windows and lay them all out. But when I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing and stuff like that, or if I'm doing like smaller, like, it's going to sound lame, like more intimate work, I guess, then there's not really like, it doesn't make sense to have the assistant. Yeah. Also, when I stopped doing the Mylar painting, because the Mylar painting is basically a paint by numbers. Yeah. I stopped doing that and I started doing watercolors. There's no room for an assistant in that either. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, not doing the Mylars anymore was a pretty big... Like that sort of changed everything because they were selling, but I wasn't happy making them. So I just stopped making them thinking I'd be able to bring all my sort of clients over to the new work and only brought some of my clients. Do you feel like your uh, art has become like less urbanized? Because I feel like the early stuff was like very graffiti and it had like identifiable firearms in it. Yeah. And like had this black line, which was very, it felt like signage or, you know. And then the new stuff with the watercolors and even the diorama is like way more almost pastoral, you know, the colors and stuff. Yeah. I guess just my sort of interest and sort of mindset and plans for the future and stuff have all changed in the last 15 years, you know. Like when I first moved to Toronto, I was really excited about living in an uh, in, uh, urban center and and got really into the street art scene and my mindset was sort of in more of a urban mindset and now i'm i'm thinking i'm into gardening now it's like a side thing like i've got like on the back of my studio i got a little uh rooftop patio thing and i've set up a garden and sometimes i go out there and i watercolor the flowers for fun and i think that probably in 15 years, I'll probably be living in a, a small farm or something. It's sort of. There's a picture of you with a big hat, and I feel like once you have a big hat yeah. in a garden. Yeah. <laughs> My girlfriend and I, she's from Quebec. Uh, we spent the summer out in the area that she grew up in, which is uh, rural Quebec. And uh, we rented a farm for the, for the summer. I guess just a month, actually, five weeks, and it was great. You know, we'd wake up every morning and we'd go fishing down at the river, and then go back to the farm and I'd paint and she'd do her thing and then cook dinner together. And, and as we establish, you don't have internet anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't have You're internet. making your own juice. Yeah. You're going to be totally self-sufficient in yeah, five that's... years. <laughs> Are you going to buy Crocs? 
You know what? I got I got Crocs. But you already own Crocs. <laughs> oh my God! I listen. Nick I has lost his edge right here on the radio. I just wear them when I'm in the studio. Yeah, there's always an excuse, Nick. <laughs> to get some airflow. Why are you rich to the Crocs? All yeah, right, I think we can stop know. now. <laughs> oh my goodness, shame! Yeah, let's stop with the shame of the Crocs. We still love I, Nick. He makes great those, work. Let's leave it on the hind. That's game. true. Those Crocs have never touched sidewalk. Those Crocs are purely. <laughs> See, he has the good sense. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah, I'm into the you know a little bit more into the rural living as I lately. It's definitely showing in the work. And we got cats and barns. I'm looking at your Instagram. Cats. Starfish oh, yeah. with an eyeball, total rural motif. I'm kind of jealous of your of, of his life. He's pretty at peace with himself. I kind of like it. <laughs> Nick always sounds at peace with himself. And then he's like, I have an abscess in my mouth. Like, <laughs> don't let him fool you. I'm always slowly dying, but I'm totally, oh. totally at peace. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'm just feeling particularly chill right now because it's Sunday night or something. I, oh, I, right. uh, I'm still like well, a angsty, angry. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was nice to catch up with both of you guys. For sure. All right. Well, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. No problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Nicholas DeGenova's latest work. Uh, and you should say, you got anything coming up? This, okay, sorry. So I say I'm Nicholas DeGenova and if I have anything coming up? Yeah, to say I'm oh. Nicholas Any shows DeGenova. or anything like that? I don't have anything coming up, though. Should I just say it? Shout out to my Instagram? Sure. To my contacts on, sure. online? Is that sure. Right? You do that. Find me online at nicholasdegenova.com or at nicholasdegenova on Instagram. One word. One word. N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-D-I-G-E-N-O-V-A. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. And Zach has a book with China Mieville called The Worst Breakfast, available everywhere where books are sold. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One Yet and is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our engineer, producer, editor of Sound, Justin Asher. I mean, what I've learned is if you want to do something, you should do it. Yeah. <laughs>